Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Hey everyone, we live in a fast-paced technological world and look, innovations in technology save lives, but when it comes to farming and agriculture, they might be making us sicker. Today's guest is Will Harris, a fourth-generation farmer and owner of White Oak Pastures, a family farm in Georgia utilizing regenerative agriculture and humane animal husbandry practices. According to Will, we have misused technology horribly when it comes to agriculture, creating unintended consequences like quote-unquote sick meat. So how do we rethink the system and live healthier lives? Will has some ideas, which we get into in the episode. And no, the solution is not highly processed fake meat. Will, welcome. Good. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. It's great to have you. I'm a big fan of White Oak Pastures. I purchased it here locally in Miami. And so let's start there. Let's tell folks about your background, who you are, and the why behind what you do. Again, thank you. So I am Will Harris. My farm is called White Oak Pastures. It's in Bluffton, Georgia. My great-grandfather started the farm in 1866. I am the fourth generation of my family to manage, operate the farm. I'm accompanied today by two daughters and their spouses. And those two daughters have five children, my grandchildren, who are the the sixth generation of my family to be on this farm. My great-grandfather and grandfather ran the farm the way people farm in the late 1800s and, and early 1900s. It was uh, it would have been, by today's uh, standard, considered to be a very regenerative, sustainable, whatever buzzword we want to use there. And it was very good for the land and the local rural community and the animals. Those were the three assets that were valued in that era. <clears throat> My dad took over the farm in 1945, post-World War II, and that is the era in which uh, his generation really revolutionized agriculture, the industrialization of agriculture. Uh, we, we could talk a lot about that, but he ran the farm that way all his life. Uh, I went to the University of Georgia, graduated in 1976, majored in animal science. By the time I graduated, it had ceased to be called animal husbandry and it couldn't be called animal science, which is pretty meaningful. And I came home and have run the farm since. The first 20 years, I ran it very industrially, like my father did. Starting in the mid-90s, I started... Uh, pretty rapidly moving away from that into the, what I consider to be kinder, gentler model that we operate on today. And so how do you define regenerative agriculture, which is the model you use today for those who aren't familiar with the term? I think we all understand industrial, the idea of feedlots, the close quarters being inhumane. I don't think there's anyone who thinks conventional industrial farming is a good idea at least those who listen to the show, but I think there's a little bit of lack of clarity around regenerative. So could you provide that for us? I think you're right. I think there is too. And I think that we can clear that up pretty simply here. So the industrial farming model that my dad embraced and I adhere to the first 20 years of my career were, were very focused on breaking the cycles of nature. 
we broke the cycles of nature. We used all sorts of pesticides and just all, also, all sorts of reductionist science to break the cycles of nature, to create a monocultural crop that, that we could commoditize. Uh, what we have done now to, in embracing holistic management is re, re-embracing the cycles of nature, the, you know, the water cycle, the energy cycle, the mineral cycle, the microbial cycle, the uh, many, many cycles of nature. Some of we probably don't even recognize the microbial cycle. And to absolutely enhance and optimize those cycles of nature to allow the, the spinoff, the abundance of nature, which is the wealth that we enjoy. That's the food and fiber that we produce here. And what do you say to those critics who maybe aren't exposed or knowledgeable about the power of regenerative uh, in terms of the ecosystem, in terms of the ability to help uh, slow down climate change, if you will, uh, and who believe in, for lack of a, I'll cut right to the chase, that the solution is an impossible burger. And this idea that, well, we're just going to create technology in, in a food product, essentially, and say, you know what, we're just going to eliminate our, our need to, to eat cows because cows are serious offenders with regards to carbon, carbon emissions. I, I know you have a strong opinion on this one. So, first of all, let me say that you know, I, I'm a farmer. I'm not a politician. I'm not a debater. I'm not a... I don't have a, a real agenda here, but I have spent the last 30 years figuring out how to restart the cycles of nature to yield an abundance that is the real wealth that land creates. I'm, I'm good at that. I, I spent the last 30 years doing it. And we we don't know all there's to know, but we have figured a lot of stuff out. The debate that you mentioned is, I think, a little easier today than it would have been 10 years ago because the damaging effects of those, of those industrial farming practices are starting to be increasingly obvious. You know, the land is eroded. The land is eroded. I mean, I don't, and there's, you know, tens of thousands of examples of that and very little you can show me that it's not eroded. The water is polluted. You know, they, they, we, they don't, you can't get oysters out of the Gulf of Mexico anymore. There's too much nitrogen runoff. You know, we can go on and on about the increasingly obvious impact that industrial farming has had on the land. And it's, it's just increasingly obvious. Now, everybody doesn't, everybody doesn't embrace it. A lot of people are making a lot of money. If you, you know, if you're a, a principal of Bayer you know, pesticide company, you're not going, you're not going to see these things really clearly you know, immediately. But most people increasingly see the, the damaging impacts of the way we produce food, the way we manage our land. I'm not out running up and down the road trying to show it to people. You know, I talk about it. I, I want people to understand it and know it. But it's not my job to spread that word. I want the word spread and I'll help. But you know, I'm a practitioner. 
But what about this idea? I, I do want to address the specific point that fake meat, which is highly processed, is, is part of the solution. Uh, you know, which which I believe it, it is not the the solution. I think the the solution is regenerative. Can you talk about that? You know, I don't I don't have any data to give you that says that uh, pseudo meat, fake meat is is harmful. I'm, I'm I'm convinced that it probably is, but I don't have any data to share with you on that. I see people share data that it is harmful, and other people share that it's not harmful. It depends on what company you got stock in, I guess. But uh, the fact is that the I, th I think that most people understand that the more highly processed your diet is, probably the less good it is for your body. And, uh, if you believe that, then you probably should be uh, very, very uh, concerned about eating a lot of fake meat. If you don't believe that, then have at it. <laughs> so... Another objection you'll often hear is that, well, regenerative ag can't feed the world. It's not. It's not. It's not scalable. Is 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 that true? There's no food production system that can food, feed the world with an exponentially increasing population. the The Earth has a carrying capacity. I, I don't know what it is, but it's got one. You can't just keep having more and more people living on this on this rock eating and it's, it's going to be okay and i guess the the real question is what food production system has the greatest carrying capacity i'm not sure that's not mine i enjoy having that conversation with other farmers when they talk about how few people my food production system can feed and how many bears can feed the debate I have is, I tell them, you know, if if space is the limiting component, maybe industrial farming would feed a lot more people than mine, if space is what we're talking about. But if it's uh, chemical fertilizer, my production system is the best. We can feed more people. If it's water, my production system can feed more people. If it's, uh, you know, I can go on and on with many, many scenarios in which my production system is more efficient and will feed more people than the industrial model is feeding us now. But if it's just space, they win. Well, on that note, look, I, I think a lot more people in 2023 are interested in regenerative ag and want to buy grass-fed beef or pasture-raised chicken or eggs. And consumer demand is increasing and so one would assume there's you know what you're doing is pretty cool maybe there are other farmers out there say hey i like i like what will's doing it makes a lot of sense uh it feels like the right thing to do with the animals you're getting a more nutrient-dense product well maybe i'd like to turn my farm into a regenerative farm but it doesn't seem like that's happening at a fast clip. What, what are some of the reasons why? why? Why why isn't the movement accelerating? Or maybe it is, I'm not just aware. No, I think it, I think it, it, it the acceleration has been far less than I anticipated as well. I agree with you on that. <clears throat> but I do understand why. 
And the fact is, it is quite difficult. You know, the commodity food production system that feeds most of the world now, most of the planet now, allows a farmer to have a niche in the system where all he does is produce his crop or crops. And somebody else takes it and processes it, markets it, distributes it, makes it available. I mean, it's, it's really, I'm not, I'm not saying farming is an easy profession, but farming is a much more simple profession now than it was in the era of my great-grandfather and grandfather and the model that I have embraced. You know, I am literally a micro-food production system. You know, we grow livestock. I'm primarily a livestock farmer, although we do have vegetables. I raise the livestock. I slaughter the livestock. I package the meat. I distribute the meat. I collect the account receivable. I, you know, it's, it's a we are a tiny, tiny little micro food production system. And we are very similar to Tyson or Cargill or the other big meat companies, except we're such a tiny, tiny fraction of the size. So is the objection that other farmers have is there's inherently more risk in doing it the way you do? It sounds like it's easier uh, there's perhaps more government support to just keep on doing the industrial farm. And like risk for small business owners is a huge variable in one's appetite. It's, it's exactly what you said. So uh, industrial farmers are, are not, not getting a good return on their investment. They're really not. They're operating very, very, very tight margins. But it's pretty simple, it's pretty easy, and it's pretty safe. Yeah, I get it. If you're a small business owner, who doesn't like easy, simple, and safe? Yeah, correct. And I, I get it. I used to operate easy, simple, and safe. I stepped away from that, and it has not been all sweetness and light. I'm glad I did. I mean, two of my three daughters and their spouses chose to come back to this farm in the model that I put together during their lifetime. And in all likelihood, they probably would not have come back to this farm had I chosen not to. There's a high likelihood that one of my seven grandchildren, I actually have seven, I have two that don't live on the farm, will come back to this farm. They may not, but there's a, I think there's a higher likelihood than if I was still simply a com commodity cattleman. You know, there, there are two things I, I keep on thinking about in the context of this conversation. Uh, one is this idea of our using technology to to essentially mess with mother earth uh which can have many unintended consequences and for me that really hit home when i heard you describe i think it was on rogan's podcast talking about a cow a feedlot cow versus a grass-fed cow and you and can you explain the difference and how this feedlot cow is so obese and what it does to that cow how that cow looks the size and lifespan just paint that picture for us because that really would, had an impact on me. yeah so you know it's called it's called confinement feeding that that's what we call it the life of one of my cattle that we raise and slaughter here 
to the life of a commodity feedlot cow probably is not much different for the first, I don't know, seven or eight months of its life. But after seven or eight months of age, when it's weaned from its mother, my calf will continue to live in the pasture and grow. And it takes them about two years to reach their slaughter weight, which is about 1,200 pounds. The life of that industrial creature is very, very different. It's all about how fast you can grow the animal and how cheaply you can do it. And whereas my, my target slaughter age and weight, I just told you, two years, 1,200 pounds. In the industrial model, it may be 18 months of age, and it may be 14, 15, 1,600 pounds. It produces a unnaturally obese creature that would never occur in nature. The lifespan of a cow, you can look it up, I think it's expected to be 20-something years, maybe 22, 24 years. Just, just a few, let the animal be born, raised, die, natural occurrences, 20-something years old. That uh, less than two-year-old animal that, that you slaughter from the feedlot, if you left him in that feedlot, wouldn't live to be much older than that 24 months old. He is, the creature is dying of all the diseases of obesity and lack of exercise that kills most of us. It's an unnaturally obese creature. That 1,400 pound cow in the feedlot, 1,500, is like a, a guy 510 that weighs. 400 pounds. It's just unnaturally obese. It's not healthy. And, you know, somehow, somehow we've come to believe that eating that creature that is dying of uh, obesity is okay. It's just fine. It won't hurt you. Yeah, it's hard to expect one to to be healthy if we're eating a creature that's obese and, and very sick. And Look, I think many people are beginning to understand the health and nutritional benefits of 100% grass-fed versus con conventional industrial, you know, corn-fed, obese, obese beef, if you will. But an objection for many is cost. Uh, with that said, could you talk a bit about cost comparison and, and give people an idea how much more expensive it is to produce? 100% grass-fed versus the conventional. Yeah, so let's let's, let's just be clear. <clears throat> raising animals on my production model costs more money than raising them industrially. We have spent the last 80 years taking cost out of production of meat, figuring out ways to do it quicker, cheaper, more cost-effective. And we made a lot of progress as an industry. How much cheaper is it for industrial commodity product versus a more natural product depends on the species you're talking about, and it's highly variable. My grass-fed beef is probably 20 or 30 percent higher than industrial beef at the grocery store. You could argue that, but it's going to be in that range. And the reason for that is so many of the cost of production in that industrial model is passed on and not absorbed by the producer. You know, we've uh, we talked earlier about the lack of oysters in the Gulf of Mexico because all the chemicals and fertilizer have washed down the Chattahoochee River 
then the, the oyster bars are no longer viable. You know, those, those are costs that were incurred that, that got passed on. The cost in, of a hog is more than 20 or 30 percent. 20 30 percent more for cattle. Probably 40 or 50 percent with, with pork. Pork are not ruminants. They, they, they eat more grain and it, it, it takes more to feed them, uh, to, to raise them that way. Poultry is even cheaper. Poultry is is, is uh, incredibly cheap. My poultry uh, chicken broilers probably cost us four dollars and a half a pound to raise a whole bird and put it in a plastic bag. You find poultry on sale for two dollars or three dollars a pound. So it's very specific. But the fact is, we absorb more of the cost of production in my model than is absorbed by producers in the industrial model. So is is the solution an effort to to right size costs? So it's a it's a it's a even even comp, if you will, same price. Is that what would need to happen? Would it be, you know, the government to to wake up and say, "Hey, we need to subsidize subsidize regenerative ag. It's it's, be, it's better for people. It's better for the planet." Uh, or is it increased consumer demand? Or is it a bit of both? No, it's, it's it's on the consumer side. The industrial model has so much influence with with the with government that I don't think we'll ever see meaningful production. Uh, differences brought about through the government. I think that any change we see will be a function of consumer demand. And the, consu- and the consumers get tricked. I mean, the consumers get consumers get tricked. There's, uh, you know, you can, uh, I give you many examples, but the most glaring is today, you can go to a grocery store, any grocery store, and buy beef that proudly says product of the USA on the label. But if the animal, the cow, was born and raised and processed in Uruguay or Australia or New Zealand or a dozen other countries. But it says product of the USA. I'm guessing because it was all the, it was blended in the U.S., blended and packaged in the U.S. It had value added to it in the USA, so it became a product of the USA. And it, it's... It's just not right. There's nothing right about that. But there's so much industry control and influence and control over uh, the, the rules and regulations and, uh, in our country that uh, I, I just don't think we'll see change come from regulation and come from consumer demand if it comes. Look, I guess I'm cautiously optimistic here in that you know, I remember five or six years ago when I wanted to buy 100% grass-fed, it was a challenge. Uh, it's a lot easier to do. I see it a lot more in restaurants than I have all over the country. And it's not just on the coast. It's, it's, it's all over the place. It's still not everywhere. It's still not where it needs to be, but I see it. Um, I remember I went to the, you know, the big natural products trade show, Expo West, which is all the great packaged foods and they're not perfect, but General Mills had a had a big commitment to we're going to support regenerative agriculture. Granted, it's General Mills; they're not perfect, but they're trying. They're acknowledging regenerative agriculture, which to me is a step in the in the right direction. Um, I, I want to come back to the the issue of soil. I think 
many people now understand soil is powerful. Uh, soil is related to our health. It's related to the quality of our food. And with the industrial model, I think we've got like 50 or 60 years left of topsoil. Like what we're doing to the, can you talk about that? How we're, we're, it's almost like a ticking time bomb with the topsoil? Yeah, the, uh, my farm, my farm has been in my family for 150 something years, has very little topsoil, had very little topsoil left. My dad and I farmed it, farmed it industrially to the point that, you know, we had a, a, about a half of 1% organic matter. That's a pretty good indicator of what kind of soil you got. And one half of 1% is all we had. You know, you can, improve, you can improve soil. It's slow. You can tear it down a lot quicker than you can build it back up. But my top, my top soil is 5% organic matter today. And... That may not sound like much to you, but uh, it, it, it makes a lot of difference. You know, uh, 1% organic matter can absorb a one-inch rain event. So my 5% organic matter soil can absorb a five-inch rain event, whereas 25 years ago, it couldn't absorb a one-half-inch rain event. You know, I, I went to the University of Georgia. I majored in uh, science and college of agriculture. I can remember my Indonesian soils professor saying, you cannot build organic matter in the coastal plain soil. And we wrote it down. And it was, and what he was telling us is, don't worry about it. You can't do that. And of course, we, we've proven you can. I, I wrote it down. I believed it for 20 years. But now I don't believe it anymore. Well, to me, this seems like something we're going to be faced with in a, in a because <laughs> we're running out of topsoil, we're damaging our topsoil. And so if it's clear that regenerative agriculture can help turn things around, well, we have a climate change problem where we're experiencing uh, all sorts of wacky weather, torrential rain, and then we're, we've got a population problem and we, we need to figure out a plan for our soil. And it sounds like regenerative ag is that plan. Well, your problem is you're, you're looking at this entirely too rationally. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, is just, it is so much harder economically to get it done than one would think going into it. You know, when I, in, 19, in the mid-90s, when I made up my mind to, to do it differently, I had no idea it was going to be as difficult and long-term time-consuming as it's been. If I had, I might not have done it. Today I say I would, but you know, we came through some hard times in that process. And that those hard times will still be for, uh, uh, have, have to be dealt with for these farmers who are willing to want to do it today. It is so easy to stay in that industrial monocultural farm model and just do what you're supposed to do every year and get you a low return, but fairly well assured return versus stepping out and building a market and vertically integrating. It, it's, it's hard. Uh, when I, uh, started changing things at some point along the line i probably thought you know 
I probably didn't know the word early in life. I probably didn't know that word, but I thought, I, you know, I'm, I'm an early innovator in this in this deal, and and like the way that sounded, and like the way it felt, but 30 years into it, I don't know if I am or not. You know, I'm I'm glad I did it. I don't regret it uh, because I was early in this movement. White Oak Pastures is established enough that uh, we we, gonna, we we probably can make a living for the next generation or two doing this, even if the needle doesn't move much. But it would be harder for a farmer today to do what I did 25 years ago than it was when I did it. It's, it's, it's very difficult to move that mop. Well, let's say it's on a much smaller scale where someone's listening and they've got a backyard. They say, I'm not a farmer, but maybe I want to grow some tomatoes or, or whatever it is I want to grow. I don't want to use, you know, fertilizer or pesticides, herbicides, any of the sides. I want to do it naturally. I want to do it as regeneratively as possible. What what can that person do in their in their backyard? Well, the answer is a hell of a lot, a lot. Uh, I'm a great I'm a great supporter of those kinds of programs. You know that. Uh, that guy or gal you just described can produce an incredible amount of food in a tiny, tiny, tiny space. It's amazing what you can do. Uh, now, can you make a living selling it? Maybe that's a lot harder. Probably not making a living, just looking. But, but to, feed you, to, to feed your family or neighboring families, you know, that, that's beautiful. And that needs to be done, and it can be done. We're talking really probably more on the vegetable side than the livestock side. Different uh, production models require different amounts of land. You know, cattle require more land than anything else that we raise commercially in this country. And you can go down, uh, sheep are less, pigs are less, poultry is less than vegetables. Is that, so, you know, you, you can do a lot with a little, but you got to be careful what, what, what you do. So someone's looking, you know, I think they're looking at this from, okay, I want to do the right thing for, for the soil. I've got a little land. I want to grow some vegetables. I don't want to pick up fertilizer. What, what are some of the things they should look for? If they've got, you know, a, a little, they want to do a little garden. They want to do right by the soil, grow wonderful, organic, luscious tomatoes, if you will. What should they look for? How, how can they do that? Okay. Well, the first thing they should do is ask someone other than Will Harris. <laughs> I think I'm pretty good at this regenerative land management on the, on the, uh, on the animal production side because that's what I do. And that's what I've done for the last. I do have a, I do have a two-acre, at morning actually, two or three-acre veg, uh, vegetable garden, but somebody else runs it and they do a great job and i love those tomatoes they raise but i'm not the guy you know i, uh, I, I don't want you to lose credibility by interviewing what wants about how well then let me ask you this how does one get to understand just the quality of soil that their you know bare feet lay on in their in their backyard and you know they, it doesn't it does not require a lot of formal education i mean uh i can remember the day i figured it out this was 30 years ago, 
and I was standing in a place, I could take you there right now on my farm, where we had done a lot of chemical uh, uh, weed control, use of a lot of chemical fertilizer, a lot of tillage, mechanical tillage, where the earth would have been about a half percent organic matter, and I was standing there looking at, at something that I had, you know, I had a reason for being there professionally, and I looked over the edge of the woods, that it never had mechanical tillage, never had pesticide, never had chemical fertilizer. And I walked over there and looked at the soil, and it was just full of life, just full of life. You could see some of it. You could feel some of it. You couldn't see some of it. And this was just a dead mineral medium. And going, shit, this is a problem. And you can do any anybody that, cares to be observant can figure that out and how to turn this dead mineral medium into this this organic soil that's teeming with life is is easy you quit doing the things that kill the soil this is dead this is live what's the difference tillage chemical fertilizer pesticides so you know it's, it's it, it is not rocket science it is not hard to do it doesn't require a lot of Steady. Uh, it just requires uh, making up your mind. You're going to do this and doing it. Is there anything that people can use that's natural instead of fertilizer, or you know, is, is apple cider vinegar or coconut oil or all the things we like to use for everything? Can they can they play a role? You got to get that microbial life jump started back in that soil. There's thousands of people out there that'll sell you thousands of products that'll certainly help their bank account and. But, uh, you know, if you'll just find a way to emulate nature, the more you can emulate nature, the more you benefit that land to make it into the medium you want it to be. It's going to, some way, some form, you need some animals. I mean, I, animal impact is part of the deal. You know, I don't believe there's, I don't believe there's an ecosystem on this planet I don't believe there's an ecosystem on this whole planet where you don't have animals and plants and microbes living in symbiotic relationships with each other. And with reductionist land management, we have separated them. You know, we put we put something out there to kill the plants, a herbicide, something out there to kill the microbes and the biocide. You know, we, we uh, something to kill all the plants except that one species we want to grow that year. It's just flying in the face of nature. It's just, it's just, it's just bad. You know, but we thought it was fine. And the, the the people that that engineered and led the way of this agricultural revolution weren't bad people. They just, they just. Uh, engage in activities that had unforeseen consequences that occurred so much later that you didn't put it together. 30 years ago, I put it together. You know, I, I don't, my view is that I, I don't think, you know, farmers or, or people are necessarily bad. They're just uneducated or they have to make decisions for their family or their small business. Uh, and then there are some people who I, I just, maybe ego driven don't get it where i'm going with this is you know bill gates obviously a topic of conversation since he owns so much farmland do i think he's evil no 
Uh, I think he's a terrible, you know, terrible husband, a little, a little creepy with, <laughs> with women. Yes. Uh, do I think he has a giant plan to take over the world or you know, I, I don't believe any of that, but I do think he operates from this place where technology above all else. And obviously he's, he's a brilliant man, but doesn't necessarily get nature, uh, the ecosystem, the, the role of soil, but, but that's my view. What, what's your take on someone like that? And, you know, them owning so much farmland. I am not anti tech. I got, uh, you know, I, I live with a cell phone like everybody else. I had the first, I, 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 I don't know anybody that had a drone when I bought my first one. I think we were on our fourth or fifth drone. You know, we, I, I like technology a lot, but we can misuse technology. And in agriculture, we have misused technology horribly, and it has yielded devastating unintended consequences and it just needs rethinking you know there is this this we don't, we don't have time to get into this but there is there is linear and there's cycle you know this this is very linear this cell phone is very this this computer we're talking very linear your body is very cyclical nature is very cyclical and we have applied these principles linear production to this very cyclical natural farm ecosystem and it yielded horrible unintended consequences they're terrible and they're obvious but they don't they are obvious you can see them see them i can see them in that soil i told you about but they don't show up quickly and there's a lot of money in uh in the production of these technologies, the skinks got a lot of it. Those have got a lot of it. You know, you you remember, or you you probably don't remember. I remember uh, big tobacco uh, fighting against the uh, message that cigarettes are harmful to your health. You know. The, a lot of big companies making a lot of money on tobacco and doing a lot of things to hide that messaging. And I think that's happening to us with big food right now. I think the, I think the same thing is occurring. And I think sooner or later we'll figure it out. But we've done incredible damage up to this point, and we'll do a lot more incredible damage between now and when that gets figured out. So other than consumers voting with their dollars, and opting to purchase from farms like yours, well, what can people do? Not a goddamn thing. Not nothing. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Just buy more. Buy from grass. Buy regenerative ag. Buy 100% grass fed. If you want to change things, if you don't, don't. But that's the only option you got. Well, I'm definitely doing my share there. You can, you can, <laughs> you can look at the turns of, of your local of, of the publics near me and see how much I'm buying. Well, I, I, I appreciate your business, but not just for White Oak Pastures, but for any of us. There, there, there are others. There, you know, it's not just us. There are. Forest of Nature does a great job, too, and outside of in, uh, outside of Austin. Those are friends of ours. He's a great story. That farm, he, he uh, it's been years, but uh, Taylor and Katie had said they wanted to find, in summary, the, the, the cheapest farmland that they could turn around one like they didn't want to pay a lot for farmland but it was a project and they were able to turn it around 
and what they're doing is amazing there. You know, they're, they're dear, they're dear friends of mine, and they've been here a lot, and I've been to their farm, and we met uh, way out in the sticks in Zimbabwe on Alan Saver's farm. I was there taking my holistic management training, and they were just kind of vacationing through there, and we met. By, I mean, it was it was after midnight by a campfire while liquor was involved. <laughs> They're lovely people. I didn't know that. Very lovely people. Uh, so on that note, you mentioned Zimbabwe. Are there countries that, that, that have nailed this, that are doing it right, who are doing regenerative, who are doing grass-fed and have figured it out better than the U.S.? You know, I fear that uh, they are becoming more like us than we are like them. You know, I think that uh, food production is industrial. And that says yes. I mean, there's some places around that have local food systems, small local food systems. But I think that uh, they, most of those places are in the process of industrializing. And it's just, uh, the, the, earth, the planet's not moving more in this direction. It's moving more in the other direction. Well, we're trying to change that. What's one thing you want our listeners to know about regenerative agriculture? You know, I, I really wish that all of you would find a regenerative farmer near you, as near you as possible, and go and, and, and get to know him. If you can't, if you can't go to the farm, you know, reach out to him online. Read, read his uh, Facebook page and whatever else social media they use, and get to know as much about them as you can, and, and become a participant in in their program. You got you know you don't the only way you're gonna be able to help them is buy from. And but, but you're the only people they can buy from. I mean, we don't. No farmer can produce food and and can grow and, and, and increase his operation unless he can find customers to buy it. And that that's how most of you can help. We're all going to do our part. And you know, to close, I saw this on your website. It said that your favorite place in the world was to be out in the pastures. You have a big coffee at sunrise and a, and a big glass of wine at sunset. That sounds like heaven. It is heaven. Yeah, it is heaven. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I hope it's okay to do this, but I want to tell you something. Uh, uh, so we got a, uh, I, I sold the book rights from White Oak Pastures to Penguin Random House. And we've written the book. and It'll be out in October. Amazing. And it's called, thank you, thank you. I, it says, I don't have a copy, it says by Will Harris. That's not right. I mean, I, I it's by a young woman named Amy Graven, but she she knows nothing about farming, and I know nothing about writing books. And we spent countless hours together, and uh, it's called A Bold Return to Giving a Damn. And it's uh, it'll be out in October, and I hope... Uh, Hope your people will consider buying. I love it. We'll we'll drop a link in the show notes, and we'll we'll have to promote it when it's when it's time to launch. Congratulations! Thank you for that, Jason. Well, Will, thank you so much uh, again. Love what you're doing. Uh, love the food you produce, and uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for having me on.